Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Psalm 40, verse 3 says, And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Father God, the praise we bring this morning springs from you, that it might return to you, that you might fill all in all. You put songs of praise into our mouths, and we gladly lift them unto you now. We were made to praise, and we would be fools to render praise to the gods and idols of this world. Those idols can't even speak for themselves, let alone put songs of praise into the very mouths of their worshipers. So, Almighty God, we worship you now through Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And amen. Amen. Worship is to be a well-executed service, like a dance, a play, a high-quality restaurant, a coronation, an inauguration, a beautiful wedding. In each of these examples, thought goes into when each element happens, who does it, and how. It isn't slapped together mindlessly, and if it is, we notice it and sit there squirming at the awkwardness. So this is an exhortation to know your part as we work together in worshiping our Lord. We are to be like those massive flocks of birds as they dance through the air with seemingly flawless execution and unity. It is an amazing thing to witness how those massive flocks of birds or schools of fish or herds of wildebeests comprised of thousands of members act as one unit. Those creatures are obedient to the Lord out of their instinct. They render praise to him in their own creaturely way. But we, made in God's image, are to render our worship to the Lord consciously, deliberately. We are to be like a flock, many individuals seemingly moving as one body, but we are to do so deliberately with determined steps, aware that we are doing so to the praise of God's glory. So this morning, say amen with vigor and unity and loudness. Sing with strength and harmony. Stand, kneel, sit, listen, and lift your hands on cue with all your might, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Prepare each week as individuals and families to meet with God. We ought not to stumble in mindlessly to meet with the King of Kings. We ought to make ready with delighted joy to make it clear to him that he is worthy of all our worship, honor, and praise, because he is. This all reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so let us prepare to do so by singing out of the depths of sadness. So as you're able, let us kneel together in confession of our sin. Isaiah 66, 2 says, For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Father God, forgive us for the ways in which we have neglected to prepare ourselves to worship you. 
whether through carelessness or through willful sin, we dare not bring you anything less than all that you are worthy of. We live in a culture that is heedless, informal, lax, and self-focused. Forgive us for so often adopting those vices. That mindset would have us think that the world revolves around us rather than the reality. It all revolves around you. If we in the church regard such sins in our own heart or in our own lives, we know this prayer will be ineffectual. So we confess our individual sins to you now. And Selah. We do this in Jesus' mighty name, and amen. amen. Let's rise for the assurance of God's pardon. Proverbs 8:35 says, For whoso findeth me findeth life and shall obtain favor of the Lord. Those who find God actually find that it was him that found them first. And this discovery comes with the wonderful glory that those who find God rest under his gracious favor and are not only forgiven, but are given life, abundant life. So I declare unto you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is Psalm 110. These are the words of God. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send out the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the, the heathen. He will fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Psalms. And we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for what it contains. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present with us today ministering to us and teaching us how to understand and apply and obey what your word teaches. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, and amen. amen. So we are continuing our slow progress through uh, the book of Psalms, uh, finishing up this decade of Psalms with Psalm 110. This particular psalm is the most frequently quoted passage of the Old Testament found in the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament quotes this passage most frequently out of all the passages of the Old Testament. The verses quoted here have various applications which we're going to consider as we work through the psalm. Uh, in other words, it's not just one famous verse that everybody quotes, it's various places in the psalm that are quoted with different applications in the New Testament. So let's work through the psalm first. Jehovah said to Adonai, there are different words for God in the Hebrew, Yahweh. Uh, uh, actually, uh, the, uh, the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, is, uh, was the sacred name that the Jews would not say out loud. All right? they, they, they wouldn't pronounce it. Um, moder in modern times, we will say Yahweh. But one of the things that happened over the, the years was uh, in Hebrew, you have just consonants, and 
And so what they did is they supplied the vowels of another word for Lord, Adonai. They supplied the vowels of Adonai and put them into Yahweh, which is where we get Jehovah. So Jehovah is a modern uh, adaptation of the vowels of Adonai and the consonants of Yahweh. So when I say uh, Jehovah, I'm referring to Yahweh. In, uh, in this psalm, it says, the Lord said to my Lord, we have the English word Lord in both places, but it's Jehovah said to Adonai. Jehovah said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. That's the first verse. He is told to remain seated there until his enemies are reduced to being his footstool. Also verse 1, while he is seated there, Jehovah will send out the rod of Adonai's strength from Zion with the result that he will rule in the midst of his enemies. Verse 2, so Jehovah is going to send out the rod of Adonai and he's going to do this from Zion. Adonai's strength is going to be exercised from Zion and Adonai will rule in the midst of his enemies. The seat of his authority is in the heavenly places, while the extension of this authority is from Zion. His people will be willing in the day of his power, verse 3. So Adonai is given all authority in heaven, but the power is exercised on earth through his people. Your people will be willing in the day of your power, verse 3. The authority is in heaven, the power is manifested on earth. The authority is in heaven, the power is manifested on earth. The Lord Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit from heaven, but the power for healing and for pr proclamation and so forth is uh, manifested in the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So the authorities in heaven, the powers manifested on earth. His people will be arrayed in the beauty of holiness. Holiness in Scripture is not something fussy. Holiness in Scripture is not something legalistic. Uh, holiness in Scripture is not all tied up hand and foot with rules and regulations. Holiness is altogether lovely. If it's not lovely, if it's not beautiful, it's not holiness. God, uh, God wants us to worship Him in the beauty of holiness. And so that's what we have here. His people will be arrayed in the beauty of holiness. They will be an army of priests, verse 3. And as Spurgeon put it, in brightness then, as well as in multitude, did they remember the, resemble the glittering drops of the morning, morning dew, verse 3. So as the dew of the morning, that's, that's how many soldiers you have. That's, they have the brightness and the freshness and the readiness that can be seen in the dew of the morning. Jehovah has taken an oath, and he will not turn back from it. Adonai is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, in the rule of Melchizedek, verse 4. Just incidentally, uh, there, are, there are some traditions of um, the Christian faith which say that oath-taking is uh, forbidden because they have applied the Lord's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount somewhat woodenly, where you've heard it was said, don't, uh, you know, don't swear by this or that. Um, uh, you've heard it said to, to keep your oaths, and I, but I tell you not to swear by the uh, heavens above and earth beneath. Um, that is, I think, a wooden application. The Lord Jesus is saying your word ought to be good by itself. Um, you ought to be able to say yes and people believe you. You ought to say no and people believe you. And you shouldn't have to haul in a stack of Bibles and swear on a, swear on a stack of Bibles. 
Uh, but in Deuteronomy, we are, we are commanded to take our oaths in God's name. Uh, the Lord has sworn, the, uh, the Lord himself swears, the Apostle Paul swears, as God is my witness, what I'm telling you is true. Uh, oaths and vows are in Scripture solemn occasions and not to be used lightly. Not, uh, it shouldn't be a cross my heart and hope to die kind of thing. It shouldn't be a stack of Bibles. But we should take oaths like in a wedding or when you're being installed in an office. You should take your oaths in the name of God and keep your oaths. And we know that oath-taking is not sinful in itself because God himself takes an oath here. So Jehovah takes an oath, and he's not going to turn back from it. Adonai is a priest forever, and he's a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 4, Adonai, there at the right hand of Jehovah, shall strike down kings in the day of his wrath. Verse 5, so Adonai, from the right hand of the Father, is going to strike down kings. He is going to judge among the Goyim, and many of them will be killed. The Goyim, the Gentiles, the, the unbelievers. Verse 6, he will slake his thirst from the brook after the battle, and he will lift up his head. Verse 7, this is a glorious poetic image. It's wonderful to be parched and have cold, clear water. But just imagine being parched after a day of dust and battle. All right. So you've just come out of the battle, and you've come out of the battle victorious, and you're thirsty, and then you drink from the brook, and you lift up your head. That's a, it's, a, it's a picture of quiet triumph. So the Lord will slake his thirst from the brook after the battle, and he will lift up his head. So let's consider what the New Testament says about this important psalm. Why should it be thought remarkable, why should it be thought remarkable for the throne of David to be established in the heavenly places? A son of David is there, so why should his throne, the throne of David, not be there? So uh, David himself is flummoxed when God promises him a son to sit on his throne forever and ever and ever. And we have an extended dynasty. The Davidic dynasty is an extended one, but there are losers and winners and good guys and bad guys in the line of David. And finally, uh, it comes to nothing in terms of a throne, but the line of David is preserved, and, we, and, and Jesus himself, we're given the genealogies, Jesus himself is descended from David. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. And being from the tribe of Judah, he's not only from the tribe of Judah, he's also descended from David. He's, he's a priest, and he's a priest forever, but he's not a priest from the tribe of Levi. He's, the Lord is a priest, but he's not descended from Aaron. He's not descended from Levi. So, uh, what, what's going on? In this famous exchange with his adversaries, the Lord asked a question that pointed out an incongruity in their doctrine of the coming Messiah. In other words, Jesus was pointing to a sore spot. There, there was an unresolved incongruity in what they, what they believed about the coming Messiah. The Christ, Jesus said, whose son is he? Who, who is the Christ going to be descended from? And they said, well, David. The Messiah is going to be of the line of David. They had that right. They knew when, when the wise men came to Herod, they knew that the uh, Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. So the city of David is the place where the Messiah was going to be uh, born. They knew that the Messiah was going to be of the line of David. The scepter will not depart from Judah until um, 
Shiloh comes. So we, we know that, that Judah and the line of David is it. And the Jews in the first century also knew that. So Jesus says, who is the Messiah going to be descended from? And they said, well, David. And so Jesus then poses them this stumper uh, in Luke 20, verse 42 and 43. And also, it's also found in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thy enemies a footstool. All right, so Jesus has a question for them. So he would be David's son, they replied. We have, that's good. That is correct, Jesus said. But have you never noticed that David addresses the one descended from him as his ultimate superior? All right, so the Lord said unto my Lord, and Jesus says, there's a real tension here. David is writing, and David said, Jehovah says to my Adonai, Jehovah says to my Adonai, and my Adonai, my Lord, is descended from me. So I outrank him. I'm his great, 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 great grandfather. David is senior to the Messiah. The, the Messiah is descended from him. The Messiah is his son. His name, if, he, if his name were reckoned the way we do names, the, Jesus' last name would be Davidson. He'd be in the phone book under the Ds. Well, we don't have phone books anymore, but back in, back in the days when we had phone books, he would be listed there under the Ds. Jesus Ben David, Jesus son of David. So Jesus is subordinate to David. And so then when David speaks to his subordinate descendant, what does David say to his subordinate descendant? The Lord said to my Lord. So David, looking at his great, 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 great grandson, bends and kneels. He's the greatest, uh, David is obviously um, the great hero, the great king of Israelite history. And when he confronts his distant descendant, he bows, right? He stoops, he kneels. The Lord says to my Lord. So they, Jesus says, have, have you ever noticed this? David calls a Davidson Lord. How can that be? Now, the only way to answer this question in a satisfactory manner would be through the doctrine of the incarnation. In other words, uh, as it says in, if you, if you look at the first part of Romans, Romans chapter 1, this is how, this is how it's resolved in the New Testament. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus is, according to the flesh, the son of David, and according to the promise and according to the power of the resurrection, he's the son of God. He's declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. He was the son of God before, but his, uh, the attestation that he is, in fact, the son of God comes at the resurrection of the dead. So he's the son of God from the moment of conception on. Uh, but God, and this is also explains why when, when people declare you are the son of God before the resurrection, Jesus tells, it, tells them to keep it down, right? Uh, quiet, don't tell anybody. Uh, you've confessed who I am. Let's not spread that word. 
it's, he, he wants to wait until God has made the definitive declaration in the resurrection. This is the Son of God, and then we may tell whom we please. That then we may, we're commanded to go tell all the world about it. So Jesus is, pointing, Jesus is pointing to the doctrine of the incarnation. The incarnation is almighty God takes on human flesh. God becomes man, or in the words of Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us. So we confess that Jesus is truly human, and we confess that Jesus is truly Adonai, truly God. Jesus is, according to the, the flesh, he's the son of David. According to his divine nature, he is the son of God. And this is found, this comes together in one person, which is Jesus of Nazareth. So one person with two natures, one person with a human nature that's just like yours and mine, and, another, and, and the same person with a divine nature, which is utterly unlike our nature. So Jesus is pointing to, when, when Jesus comes into an awareness of who he is, he is pointing to something that can only satisfactorily be answered by uh, what, was, what the church hammered out after three centuries in the, in the uh, uh, Nicene Creed. In the Nicene Creed, we confess that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but all the ingredients of that confession are found in Scripture, and Jesus knows. Jesus knows that he came from the Father. He knows he's returning to the Father. Jesus is aware of his divine identity, and he's also fully aware of his humanity. And he points this he points to this incongruity in scriptural interpretation among the Jews as a sore spot. So, yes, you're right. The Messiah is going to be the son of David. We have to realize that for us as Christians, it's a commonplace that the Messiah is divine, that the Messiah is the son of God. But the Jews, many of the Jews in the Old Testament period just thought of the Messiah as a great deliverer. They thought uh, it was not off the table that the Messiah could be just another man, you know, another great hero of the of the faith. But Jesus is pointing to this passage, and he's saying, no, the Messiah has to be more than just a man. The Messiah has to be more than just a man because the Holy Spirit calls him Adonai. David calls him Adonai and has Jehovah addressing him as Lord. So that's one place where the New Testament uh, argues from this psalm. There's another passage, another verse in this psalm that's quoted, and that has to do with the great Melchizedek. This is, this is a psalm about a great king, one seated at the right hand of the Almighty Jehovah. So the king is the, the king of the universe, the king of all, Jehovah, is seated on his throne, and of course, he has no body and no physical throne. We're, we're, we're talking in marvels that are above us, but uh, Jesus has a right hand, but God the Father, God the Father, Jehovah does not have a right hand. Jesus is seated in the, in the position of power and authority. He's seated at the right hand of Almighty Jehovah. But this king is also described as a priest. This king is also described as a priest. Now, all through the Old Testament, uh, Calvin uh, helpfully deline delineated for us the fact that Jesus is a threefold office bearer. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is our prophet, 
Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is our priest, Psalm 110 would be one place, uh, and Jesus is our king, also Psalm 110. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. He teaches us, he intercedes for us, he offers the sacrifice for us, and he rules us. All right, so prophet, priest, and king. Now, all through the Old Testament, those offices were usually divided. The prophets were out in the wilderness, and they'd come in periodically to rebuke the king. The king was in the palace, and the priests were at the temple. Those offices were not combined in uh, one person. In fact, uh, when King Uzziah tried to offer, uh, tried to assume to himself the office of a priest, uh, the priests inter intercepted him, and then he was struck with leprosy, and he had to flee the temple. The kings and people in positions of power and authority oftentimes are jealous of other positions of power and authority, and they want to bring them all together. But we're sinful human beings, and we can't be trusted with all the power in one place. But the Lord Jesus combines all these offices in one person. And when this is being pointed out, the one place where we see a priest and a king together in a good way in the Old Testament is from the book of Genesis in the order of Melchizedek, in the example of Melchizedek. So this king is described as a priest in 110, and so it's fitting that another priest king, Melchizedek, would be mentioned as a type of the coming Messiah. Melchizedek is a type of the coming Messiah. But this Melchizedek is a type in more than one way. He too is a king, and what a king. In Hebrews 7, 1, 1 and 2, it says this, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, notice he's a king, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high. That's the odd juxtaposition. You don't usually have a king and a priest together. Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So he was the priest of God Most High, but he was also a king in a different sense. He was the king of Salem, and Salem means peace, and Salem here is probably Jerusalem, so Jerusalem. Um, so he is uh, the king of Salem, and that means he's the king of peace. His name means king of righteousness, and this is why his antitype belongs at the right hand of Jehovah. So Mel Melchizedek is an ancient Canaanite king, and the author of the book of Hebrews makes a, uh, an argument out of the fact that there's no genealogy mentioned for him. We don't know who his father was. So we don't know who his father was. He's just there. He just appears. And we know that he's very important because Abraham, the father of the Jews, the father of all the covenant people, pays, pays tithes to Melchizedek. So Abraham comes back from the slaughter of the kings, and he gives a tenth of all the spoil to Melchizedek. And that tells you that there's a, there's a Canaanite king who is righteous. Not only is he righteous, he's the king of righteousness. The, the name of his city is peace, and he's the king of peace. He's the king of that city that means peace, and he has no genealogy. Um, and so the author of Hebrews says, well, this means it, it's a type of him having no beginning of days or end of life. So Jesus is the antitype of Melchizedek. 
And that gives you a priest king from the Old Testament, a priest king from the Old Testament who is not from the line of Judah, uh, who is, uh, I'm sorry, who's not from the line of Levi. Uh, Jesus is not from the line of Levi, but that doesn't disqualify him from, be, from being a priest king. So in Hebrews 5, 6, Hebrews 7.17 and Hebrews 7.21, it says, As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So you have this character Melchizedek who appears in the book of Genesis and then disappears. Then randomly, centuries later in Psalm 110, and this is the odd thing, in Psalm 110, you have this Psalm of David and David just pops up, throws Melchizedek in there. <laughs> Why would David do that, right? Why wouldn't David think in terms of the Aaronic priesthood? Why wouldn't he speak in terms of Levi? Well, because he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And, and the message that is delivered is the Lord has sworn and will not repent. Right? This is a, an untouchable oath. It's not going to be altered. The Lord has sworn and is not going to, re, not going to repent of it. Um, you are a priest forever. Now, who are we talking about? We're talking about verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand. We're, we're talking about the Messiah. The Messiah is going to be a priest, and the Messiah is going to be a king, and he's not going to be of the tribe of Levi. He's not going to be descended from the tribe of Levi. Just for those, of, a little fun fact, for those of you who are interested in chasing these things and interested in, in endless genealogies, um, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, who was from the tribe of Levi, remember Zechariah is a priest, he's serving in the temple when John the Baptist was uh, promised to him. John the Baptist was the Lord's cousin, all right? So J Jesus had some connection to the tribe of Levi, but not a priestly connection to it. Uh, we, and he's uh, related to the Lord because Elizabeth and Mary are cousins. So that might mean Mary is of the tribe of Levi and she married from someone from the tribe of Judah, or Elizabeth was from the tribe of Judah and she married someone from the tribe of Levi, but it's an oblique connection. John the Baptist is a Levite. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah and they're related to each other, but there, no argument is made in the New Testament from that. Uh, the Lord's connection to Levi is an oblique one. So, all, um, also, incidentally, uh, after the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, all the genealogical records of the Jews were destroyed in that, uh, in that destruction. The, the genealogies were housed there in the temple, and when the temple was destroyed, uh, basically uh, uh, tribal identity within Israel became much, much more difficult. Uh, uh, we have some indication. So, for example, the, the word, uh, if you, uh, Cohen is the Hebrew word for priest. So, uh, someone who is a, a Jew with the last name of Cohen might be from the tribe of Levi, but that's the most we can say. Might be. The Lord Jesus has a priestly kingship that's grounded on something else entirely. And we see in Romans 1 that it's the power of the resurrection. You're a priest, the Lord has sworn and is not going to take it back. You are a priest forever. 
So what does this mean? What does this, what does this entail? The first chapter of Hebrews is dedicated to showing that the Christ is vastly superior to the angels. So the author of Hebrews wants to show that the Christ is superior to Moses because some people wanted to chase after Moses. Uh, there were some Jews who wanted to get into angelology. They wanted to uh, investigate who the superior angels were. The author of Hebrews wants to show that Christ is superior to the angels, chapter 1. He wants to show in chapter 2 that Christ is superior to Moses. Moses was a faithful servant in the house, but Jesus is the son over the house. So the first chapter is showing that Christ outranks the angels. Christ is not the greatest of the angels. Christ is not created at all. So Christ is the uncreated God. So in Hebrews 1.13, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool? In other words, God doesn't, God doesn't say things like Psalm 110 verse 1 to an angel. He doesn't say it to Michael, doesn't say it to Gabriel, doesn't say it to the greatest of his created beings. He says to his son, he says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And in the book of Acts, we are told that this has reference to someone other than David himself. This has reference to someone other than David himself. So in Acts 2, 34 and 35, it says, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. So uh, in Acts, we're told this psalm is by David. It's not about David. It's by David, and it's about David in the sense that it's about one of his descendants, but it's not about David primarily. David didn't ascend into the heavens in order to be seated himself at the right hand of God the Father. So then, this should be very straightforward. When, when was Christ seated at the right hand of his Father? Every week when we say the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. When did that, when did that become true? When, when did that happen? We are told in Scripture that it happened at the Ascension. It did, it did not happen centuries after the Ascension. It, didn't, it wasn't the case before the Incarnation. It happened at the Ascension. In Ephesians 1:20, it says, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So you notice that the motion is fluid. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. So Christ was raised from the dead. He appeared to his disciples. A few weeks later, he ascends into heaven. And then in Daniel 7, in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, we, uh, Daniel uh, looked and saw in the night visions, he saw one who was like unto a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. Also, incidentally, when Jesus says, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, that's not the second coming. That's not Jesus coming back to earth. The son of man coming on the clouds of heaven is not the second coming. It's the ascension. It's the son of man. I saw one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And where did he come? In Daniel 7, into the presence of the ancient of days. And what happened then? He was given universal power and authority and dominion over all nations. And he was seated at God's right hand. So this is talking about the enthronement 
the coronation of the Lord Jesus after his sacrifice. So he, he dies on the cross, he rises, he's raised up from the dead, he appears to his disciples, he ascends into the heavenly places, he presents the blood that he shed on the heavenly altar, he offers the sacrifice of himself in the heavenly places, and then he is seated at God's right hand, and then his first act of authority from that place is to pour out the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is then poured on the Christian church so that his people will be willing in the day of his power. Back to Psalm 110. So in, in Hebrews 8.1, reading here from the ESV, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That was written 2,000 years ago, and it was written by a Christian to Christians. And the point, he's saying, the point of what I'm saying is this. The point of the book of Hebrews is this. We have a high priest just like that, and he is currently seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's currently seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So what does that do? So he's been seated there for the last 2,000 years. Christ has been seated there for the last 2,000 years, ruling planet Earth. He rules. He's the king. He is the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. He says in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, Christians have to learn how to stop saying, if you were asked the question, who is the God of this world? We have to stop saying the devil. We have to stop saying Satan. Satan is not the God of this world. The devil is not the God of this world. He was deposed. He was thrown down. He was toppled. In Colossians, it says that Christ uh, triumphed over, <coughs> excuse me, he triumphed over the principalities and powers in the cross. It says in uh, Hebrews that he, through his, uh, through his death, might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. All right. Jesus says that when he's lifted up on the cross, he's going to draw all men to himself. Jesus teaches us that his authority is grounded in his death, and that death, the blood of that death, was presented to, in the heavenly places when he ascended into heaven, and that means Jesus is the king of the United States. That means that Jesus is the king of Thailand, he's the king of China, he's the king of Great Britain, he's the king of Germany, he's the king of all of it. Why? Because he purchased it with his own blood. Now, you might say, well, why does the Bible say the God of this age, referring to the devil? Because it was age, not Ionos, not Cosmos, God of that age. The devil was the God of that age, certainly. When the devil tempted Jesus, he presented him with all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, all these I will give you if you just bow down and worship me. That was a true temptation. The devil had power. The devil had power over those kingdoms. And the devil was offering something that he had the authority to give. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to take them from you as a gift because I'm going to take them from you, period. I'm not going to take them from you as a present. I'm not going to be indebted to you. I'm not going to bow down to you. I'm going to bind the strong man, and then I'm going to steal all the strong man's stuff, as it says in Luke. That's what you do. You bind the strong man, and then you take all his stuff. That's what Jesus did. So he's been seated there for the last 2,000 years, ruling human history. How is his rule manifest? 
his people are made willing in the day of his power. He rules the authorities in heaven. The power is in the preaching of the gospel here. The power is in the ministry that's conducted here. The power is in the church planting here. The power is in the missionaries going out from here. All right, the power is exercised horizontally, but the authority is at the right hand of God the Father. So how long will Jesus remain seated there? He's been seated there for 2,000 years. He will remain seated at the right hand of power, ruling from the midst of our Zion until all his enemies are under his feet. That's how long he's going to remain at the right hand of God the Father, until all his enemies are under his feet with one exception. Remember, and I'll get to that exception in a minute. Remember that the authority is in heaven and the authority is manifested on earth. He will conduct his rule through his people who have been made willing. We are that Zion. We are that Zion. We are that people who have been made willing in the day of his power. The only enemy that is going to be destroyed by the second coming is death. It says every other enemy will be subdued prior to that through the ministry of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. We, uh, we seek to bring every thought captive, it says, bringing everything into obedience to Christ. Our job, our task as Christians in this world is to make every unsubmissive thought submissive to Jesus. That's the task. Every unsubmissive nation submissive to Jesus. Every unsubmissive family, submissive to Jesus. That's what's going on. For he must reign, it says, and, and notice this in Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until, sit at my right hand until. Jesus is not going to come back and destroy all his enemies. He is going to come back and destroy the one enemy left which is death. When he returns, that's the resurrection of the dead. When he returns, that's the end of human history. That's the end of ordinary human history. When he returns, death is destroyed. The dead are raised. It's all over. The ordinary course of human history is all over, and we enter into the eternal state. That's what happens when Jesus returns. He's going to come. When he returns, he's going to return to take out the last enemy. All the other enemies will be defeated prior to that time. Every other enemy, except death only accepted, is going to be destroyed. And it's going to be destroyed by the preaching of the gospel. Unbelief, infidelity, false doctrines, cults, cancers, you know, diseases, um, pests, difficult, you know, famines. Uh, every enemy is going to be destroyed. People will still die. Isaiah says that, but it's going to be the kind of thing where when a man dies when he's 100 years old, people are going to say, man, what did he do wrong? You know, <laughs> he's going to be considered accursed if he dies when he's 100. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be wonderful prior to the second coming of Christ, but it's still going to be a fallen planet, still going to be a fallen world, and people will still die. We will still have Christian funerals. Not only that, because it's going to go on for century after century, we're going to have a lot of Christian funerals. 
There are going to be many people put in the ground looking forward to the day of resurrection, and then Jesus is going to return, and he is going to destroy the last enemy, and then we enter into that state which we can't comprehend. It does not yet appear what we shall be, uh, what we're going to be like, John says. So he must reign till he hath put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Our Father in God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for all of it. Uh, two things I want you to take away and remember this morning. One is, as we look at this the psalm this morning, Psalm 110, and how frequently it's quoted in the New Testament, it shows us that the, the Lord Jesus and the New Testament writers, the apostles, were steeped and soaked in the Old Testament which means we too need to be readers and students of the Old Testament. And this is also an invitation coming September 9th. We're going to be kicking off our year-long read through the Bible. Uh, so make sure to join in that and study the whole Bible, read through the whole Bible, be steeped in it, just like the New Testament is. The second thing I want you to take away is that Christ is at the Father's right hand. Your Savior is at the Father's right hand. And what Paul tells us is that you are seated with him. And this should embolden you in your battle with sin. It should encourage you as you preach the gospel uh, to every creature, to those you come into contact with. And it should make you fearless as we, as we as the church lock horns with the enemies of Christ because they've already lost and Christ is triumphant. Now hear the benediction of the Lord. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever, and amen.